And if you have a Bible, I do want to invite you to open that up to Mark chapter 6. And if you don't, we are going to put some of the, uh, the, the verses up on the screen for you this morning. And if you, hear, you were here last week, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Nate, chapter 6. We were in chapter 4 last week. Are you guys you skipping a chapter here in our, in, our, in our study? And we actually aren't going to cover the last part of uh, Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 together in this setting because we actually walked through that in depth as a church family almost nearly two years ago to the day. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, we actually focused specifically in, in that section of this book of Mark. So if you'd like to go back and listen to those messages, you can head over to our website and listen to those. But we are going to jump ahead to Mark chapter 6, uh, starting verses 1 through 6 today. And as I was thinking about our passage today, I was actually reminded of a situation that my dad found himself in of many years ago. So my dad used to have to travel a little bit for his job and had the opportunity to go to Europe for a while. And uh, as part of that trip, he actually had a little bit of an extended break where he got to see a little bit more of the country rather than just doing obviously the work things. So he spent some time in Switzerland, went down to Italy, and then while he was in Italy, hopped on a train to go up to Austria. Specifically, he wanted to go to Innsbruck, Austria, where there is a museum uh, for the Winter Olympics. Innsbruck used to actually served in 1964 as the host site for the Winter Olympic Games. We just had the uh, Olympics close up just a week or so ago uh, recently, uh, and he wanted to go visit that. So he hops on a train from Milan, Italy, and has about a seven-hour train ride to get to Innsbruck. And at one point on that train ride, uh, a gentleman boarded the train and got into his compartment came into my dad's little seating area, he's wearing a suit, had a briefcase, was like a businessman, had a pair of glasses on, sat down, and eventually he and my dad struck up a conversation. And during that conversation, they realized they had a couple of things in common and kind of asked each other just as various questions. And um, the gentleman asked my dad, well, what's bringing you to Austria? The gentleman was actually from Austria himself. And he said, oh, I actually want to go to Innsbruck to visit the Olympic Museum. And the gentleman goes, oh, do you enjoy winter sports? And my dad goes, actually, yes. Um, in fact, where, my, where, I, where I grew up in Washington State, we had a ski resort about 20 minutes from where we live. So we spent quite a bit of time on that ski hill. In fact, even as I'm preaching right now, my sister's actually at a ski resort in Montana. Hope you're having fun, Amy. Um, and so anyway, we did a lot of that uh, growing up. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but in answering that question, my dad just happens to say, but you know... Out of all the Winter Olympic sports, the one that I just don't get is the luge. I mean, really, when you think about it, all you're doing is you're sitting on a sled, pointing your toes, and letting gravity do the work, just heading on down that ice chute. And the gentleman sitting in his chair kind of leaned forward and pushed up his glasses and goes, well, there's actually a little bit more to it than that and entered into a 15-minute lecture on the intricacies of what it takes to compete in the luge, from the aerodynamics of the sled to the body strength and training that's needed to actually move and direct the sled in the way that it needs to go. So my dad sat and quietly listened to him as he told about all these intricacies. And at the end of that lecture, my dad looks at this gentleman and he goes, well, you obviously know quite a bit about the luge. Did you ever compete in the luge? And he goes, ah, I did, I did a little bit. And my dad goes, well, did you ever compete internationally? And the gentleman chuckled and said, sir, this is Europe. All competition is international. And my dad goes, well, did you ever compete in the Olympics? And he goes, now you're getting personal. 
Now, if you don't know my dad, he's actually the kind of guy that he, he's not going to hold back. He's going to ask the tough questions. He's going to push when needed. So he figured, well, I've already kind of gotten into this a little bit. Let's just keep going. He goes, well, did you compete in the Olympics? And the gentleman goes, yes, I did. And he goes, well, did you medal? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And so my dad figures, well, I've already offended him at this point. I've got to keep going. What medal did you get? And the gentleman looks down at his hands, takes a deep breath, looks up at him and goes, gold. And it was in that moment that my dad realized that he had just told an Olympic champion that there is absolutely nothing to his sport. <laughs> now, eventually, the gentleman got off at his stop, and my dad did go to that Olympic museum about the next day or so, and when he got there, he realized that he had not only offended an Olympic champion, but a national hero. So the gentleman's name uh, was Josef Feismantel. Hopefully I said that right. And he was the Olympic gold medalist in the doubles luge in 1964, which when you look at that, you think, thank God that we have better technology for sleds than that nowadays. <laughs> but he was also the world champion in the singles luge in 1969. And what he realized is when he got to that museum, that this was an only Olympic champion, but this individual, when the Olympics returned to Innsbruck, the Winter Olympics in 1976, Joseph was the one who lit the flame at the opening ceremonies at the part of that Olympics. Pretty crazy, huh? So why do I begin with this story today? Well, because of how ordinary Joseph appeared to my dad, he totally missed who he was speaking to. And as it turns out, we're going to see in our passage that the exact same thing actually happened to Jesus. We're going to see this in just a moment, but because of how ordinary Jesus appeared, mainly to those who knew him the most, they totally missed out on who, it, who he was. And that would come with devastating consequences. So in the opening verses of chapter 6, we're ultimately going to see two primary responses to Jesus that have implications for Every single person that's living or listening in here today, whether you're here in the room or listening online or at a Montgomery County location, or if you're visiting, like we're so glad to have you here, or if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity and unfamiliar with the message of the entire Bible, like I'm so glad you're here today because I think this passage has the biggest implication for you out of any of us today. So we're going to dive in in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to give another short English, 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 I can't even say the word, English lesson that will ultimately help us study today's passage. So if you were here last week, David actually gave us some helpful tips on how to study and interpret parables. If you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, from last week. This week, I want to give you another tool related to studying narrative in the Bible, which I really hope will help you feel even more confident in your ability to study God's word particularly when it comes to studying narrative. So you see, most of the New Testament, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, were actually written in the style of narrative, telling the story of events that actually took place. And one of the best ways to observe what's taking place in a biblical narrative is to do what's called, now don't get scared when I say this term, a narrative analysis. Any of you remember that here in that in English class at all? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. It's really just a fancy term that means identifying the key elements of a story. It's actually the very first thing I did as I sat down and preparing to teach this message today. 
For some of you, it's a tool you likely learned back in English class, and as I just saw, many of you likely have forgotten it at this point, which is totally fine. Let me just check with our students. I know we've got students in the room. Can you think back to your English class and just shout out some of the components that are part of a narrative analysis? What are some of the things you're looking for? I heard plot. That's some of them. Setting, yeah, so setting, where the story takes place, the plot, characters that are involved in the story, conflict, like what's the problem that's being addressed in the story? What's the climax, like the high point of the plot? And then resolution, like how does the conflict resolve? So when you do a narrative analysis, you're simply just identifying those key components of a passage. And with that brief review in mind, what I actually want to do is give you a little bit of time on your own to see if you can do a narrative analysis with our passage. So if you've got something to write on, I want to invite you to take that out right now. If you don't, you can use a device if you'd like. If, otherwise, I always love if people can actually write something down at all of our communion tables in the room here at Tyson's. And I think the same out at Montgomery County. There should be some paper and pens available for you. You can go ahead and stand up and grab that now. I'm going to give you about two or three minutes or so to sit with our passage and see if you can identify just four key elements of the story, specifically the setting, the conflict, the climax, and the resolution. We're just going to be looking at verses one through six in our time together today, and I would love to read this passage to get us started, and then I will give you some time on your own to identify those elements. Does that sound good? If you're with me, say, oh yeah. All right, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Okay. Setting, conflict, Climax, resolution. Take a few minutes on your own and see if you can identify those four things in this passage. Go.
Okay. You ready to see how you did? I hope, um, I hope this is helpful in just trying this. And my plan is actually I want to walk through the outline that I came up with as I was, uh, as I was studying this passage. And I want to provide a little context to the passage while we do that along the way. But I, want, I wanted to do this specifically to show you that this is something that you can do very easily when you approach the study of God's word. Like just as this is important to take a look at the context before and after a passage, this is one way to try to really observe the text well. In fact, one other step, which we didn't have time to do this morning in doing this, is I'd encourage you after you do that observation is to try to write out in one sentence what was the main point of that passage. And in doing so, hopefully you see that this is something that you can do. This is how easy it is just to observe and study the Bible. So here's what I want to do. Let me walk through those four elements and let's see, let's see how, how, it, uh, how it kind of turned out for you in working through this. Number one, first we see the setting actually really clearly in verses one to two. Like, it's just like spelled out really clearly right there. You just, you can't miss it. It says this, verse one, he went away from there, there being Capernaum, where Jesus had just performed many miracles, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So the scene is in Jesus' hometown. It doesn't list the actual place, but where was Jesus' hometown? Nazareth. Nazareth. Yeah, he said Bethlehem. That's where he was born, but his hometown was actually in Nazareth. And Nazareth was, was really an insignificant town, had fewer than 500 people that lived there. In fact, the size of the town was just a little bit over 60 acres or so, which if you think about the size of our property here at Tyson's along with Jill's house, that's just under 60 acres, so not a large area of land at all. And the town didn't have a very good reputation for that matter either. In fact, if you listen to how Jesus' own disciples describe this town in John chapter 1, when Philip finds Nathanael and he invites him to follow Jesus with him, um, Nathanael says this, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, didn't have a very good reputation at all. So Jesus is in Nazareth and he's teaching in the local synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, this is likely not the first time that Jesus had returned home to his hometown as well. In fact, the Gospel of Luke records another interaction of Jesus at the synagogue with some different events and outcomes. And one thing that even differentiates these two accounts is back in Luke, Jesus shows up at the synagogue alone. Here in Mark, Jesus shows up with who? His disciples. He shows up with his disciples. In this, which in this passage, I think actually Jesus is getting ready to teach them something that we're going to see in the very next passage after this. We're not going to dive into today. That'll be next Sunday. So if you want to hear what that lesson is, come back next week. And I'll also note that the response to Jesus's prior visit to the synagogue was also not very positive. So in that encounter, Jesus uh, goes into the synagogue. He stands up and he's invited to read from a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. He reads a prophecy about the coming Messiah, and then he sits down, and it says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says this, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which sets the synagogue into a major commotion. They do marvel at his wisdom and authority, but then they largely take offense at him and listen to how they respond to Jesus. It says this in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So needless to say, Jesus' second coming was not a happy homecoming, which sets the scene for the next element of our passage, the conflict. And we see this specifically in verses two and three. 
What's the, what's the conflict? Well, it's really the impact that Jesus has on his hometown. And listen to their response to his teaching the second time in verse 2. It says in, in Mark verse 2, uh, many, who heard, many who heard him were astonished. So it says they were astonished, which on first read might seem like a positive response, but the language used in their questions that would follow this statement seemed to show otherwise. This is actually not a tone of amazement. Like if you watched the Winter Olympics a week or so ago, I guess it was a little over a week ago now, and watched Nathan Chen land multiple quads in the Olympic ice skating program, like you were amazed at that. Or if you watched Chloe Kim be the only female snowboarder to land multiple 1080s in the half pipe on her road to a repeat gold, like you were amazed watching that. Or whatever Olympic sport, if you were able to watch it, you were amazed by. Maybe even the luge. (laughs) The tone here is not a tone of amazement, though. It's rather a tone of disbelief. It's like they're saying, where did this man get these things? Like, what is the wisdom that's been given to him? And it's not hard to imagine why this would be their attitude. Since Nazareth was such a small town, many of the people were familiar with Jesus and likely watched him grow up. And because of that familiarity, they had a hard time believing that he was who he said he was. In fact, you see this even in the questions that they ask. Look at verse 3 with me. They say, is not this the carpenter? Which when we hear the word carpenter, we tend to think of woodworkers or cabinet makers, which actually might be what the Bible is talking about here. In fact, most of our children's Bibles often picture Jesus with a spindle in one hand and a wooden mallet in the other. And while it's possible that Jesus actually was familiar with working with wood, that term carpenter actually refers to a little bit larger picture. The word, carp- the word for carpenter is actually tecton, where we get the word architect from. And while it's possible, again, that Jesus was familiar with working with wood, this word is actually used to describe a variety of different trades and skills, such as sculptors, smiths, shipbuilders, stonemasons, even physicians. And interestingly enough, as archaeologists have now excavated the city of Nazareth, they discovered a large, complex network of caves that are carved out out of stone underneath the city. And since there were not a lot of trees, really, in this part of the world, it's really mainly desert and rock, it's actually more likely that Jesus spent more of his time working with stone than with wood. So even though the Bible says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, he was actually probably a pretty ripped dude, if you think about it. Like, carrying around all that stone through those caves and cutting up that stone, like, you kind of have your own picture of first century CrossFit happening right here in Jesus' backyard. He's probably a pretty fit dude. Might say he probably looked a lot like you, Nate. And I say, I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. No, I'm just kidding. So their attitude toward Jesus becomes even more clear in the next phrase. Say, this is not the carpenter. Is this not the son of Mary? Now, normally when describing someone at this time, it was was proper and customary to refer to them as the son of their father, not the son of their mother. And some think that it was worded this way because at this point, either Joseph had passed away or was out of the picture. But it's actually more likely that this phrase represents the faulty assumption that the people of Nazareth still had about Jesus' birth. They thought that it was illegitimate. They thought that he was not born by immaculate conception, but out of wedlock out of scandal. So they see Jesus, and all they can think of is, like, hold on a minute, who does this guy think he is? Like, he's just an everyday manual worker just like us with a really shady birth story. Who does this guy think he is? 
And then they pull his siblings into the mix too, who as we actually covered a few months ago, also didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I preached on this back in November, but we know from earlier in the book of Mark that his own family thought Jesus was off his rocker. Contrary to what the Catholic Church teaches, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus had actual biological siblings. He was the oldest of at least seven kids, maybe even more. Back in chapter chapter 3, Jesus' family begins hearing about the miracles that he was doing, and they up and go to where he was and listen to their response. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Which this may sound similar to what some of you may have experienced if you attended your high school reunion. Any of you go to your high school reunion? I didn't have a chance to go to mine, unfortunately. But when you reconnect with people that you haven't seen or heard from in years, but are very familiar with, it's hard to believe what's maybe potentially happened in their lives, mainly because of that familiarity. Like, do you guys remember awarding uh, senior superlatives at one point? You know, like um, class clown, most musical, all those different kinds of things. Any of you get awarded one of those? Some of you did, yet you're like, I don't want to admit that. Um, I was voted one. I won't tell you which one it was, but somehow I ended up with one in my senior class. And it was funny, I was actually recently looking through my senior yearbook, and I realized that the individual that we voted most likely to leave town was actually still living in our hometown. So we got it completely wrong. But as, even though I wasn't able to attend my reunion, I do feel like I still experience some of the things that we're seeing in this passage whenever I go back and visit uh, my high school. Let me tell you a little bit about my hometown now. So I actually grew up in Washington State, a little small town called Wenatchee. I lived there for 16 years before my family moved to the small town of Gettysburg, just an hour and a half north of here. Uh, And that transition was really difficult. And let me tell you a little bit why. One, obviously, like moving right after your sophomore year of high school is a really challenging time to move. It was difficult in many ways. I've absolutely seen the Lord's grace, and I'm so thankful that he's done that now. But also, my hometown sat right on the eastern edge of the Cascades, right on the Columbia River Gorge, if any of you are familiar with the state of Washington. So if I were standing in my parents' backyard right now, I would look up one direction, and I would see the snow-capped Cascade Mountains, the beautiful, lush Columbia River Valley down below, and then right across the river we see the desert grain plants, rocky desert area. It's one of the most unique places in the country. I absolutely love it. And we moved from that glorious setting to Gettysburg. (laughs) Which I know some of you love history, and there is a lot of history there. It was really cool, and my history teacher just drew a map of downtown and said, this is where the Battle of Gettysburg took place. But it was still Gettysburg. It's like really difficult and hard, and I'll have to admit that move impacted my witness for the Lord just because it was a really challenging time processing that, even a little rebellious in some ways, to the point that it hurt my witness for Jesus to some of those in my high school. And now whenever I go back or if I visit anyone or run into someone from my senior class and they say, hey, Nate, how are you? What do you do now? And I say, oh, I'm a pastor. They go, excuse me, you're a pastor? which then gives me an opportunity to share about the wonderful transformative power of the gospel in my life, which, by the way, is the greatest tool the Lord has given you in being able to share the gospel, the way he has transformed and changed your life. So those that were present with Jesus, because of their familiarity of growing up with him, could see him as no other than a local boy who they felt was out of his mind. And just in case it wasn't clear enough for you already, verse 3 closes by saying this, and they took offense at him. They were offended by his personal sensibilities. And they thought it was utterly ridiculous that Jesus would claim such things. And as we'll see in a moment, 
their reaction would bring about major implications on their lives. So we've seen the setting, the conflict, and now we reach the third element of the story, the climax. Verse four, and at the height of their questions, Jesus recites to them a common adage in recognition of their attitude. And Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's similar to a phrase commonly used today that says familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, those who are most familiar to us can be the most difficult for us to respect. And again, he says this in recognition of their posture towards him, which then leads us to the fourth and final element of this narrative, the resolution, which I'll note is not even necessarily a positive one. Resolution of a, of a, of a, of a, of a storyline or a conflict does not always mean there's a happy ending as, as if everything is resolved. It instead refers to the end result of that conflict. And according to the text, we see that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he gets up and he leaves and he goes to other villages. Now, I know one of those phrases in there that says he could do no mighty work there might leave you with some questions. Like, does this mean that those people were really able to limit Jesus' ability? Is that what it's saying? I'm gonna leave you in that tension for just a moment. We're gonna come back to that shortly. So, with this understanding and picture of the text in mind, I want us to see that every single one of us listening in here today have to make a decision about Jesus, how we're going to see him. And there's really only two options based on what we see in the text today. And both are choices that have implications for our life and our eternity. So if you're taking notes, one response, the first one, which we see really clearly in this passage is this. That we can take offense at Jesus and reject him as king. We can take offense at Jesus and reject him as king. We can listen to his claims and hear about his amazing works and still just write him off as just another person now, I recognize that many, if not most of you in this room or watching right now at one of our other locations or online are not in this place. I'm actually going to address that response in just a moment, but there's still application for you even as we walk through this section, so stick with me in this. Now, Jesus made some really bold claims in his life. I wish we had time to go through all of them, but he made a lot of them. And it's not surprising that our reaction to those claims would be to be offended. In fact, the Bible itself states that Jesus is going to be offensive to the world. Saw this just a couple weeks ago in our Bible reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul describes Jesus as a stumbling block. Now, just listen to a few of the claims that Jesus made. First, he claimed that he was God. Now, when someone claims to, to be divine, it brings with it the assumption that they are in a position of authority over you, and we take offense at that. Why? Because we want to be the supreme authority in our lives. Like, we want to be the center, and we don't like to give that position up easily to anyone. And Jesus, all throughout his ministry, clearly proclaimed that he was divine, God in the flesh. And our pride wants to rebel against that, which is exactly what happened in his prior visit to Nazareth. He proclaims that he was the fulfillment of prophecy, the coming Messiah, and they revolt and try to throw him off a cliff. Jesus also claimed that our hearts are utterly wicked and desperately in need of being healed. And this is actually what the message of the entire Bible is all about. That God created every single one of us to know and enjoy him, but yet every single one of us has rebelled against his authority, telling him that we want to be the center of our lives rather than him. 
said that with our thoughts and our actions that we believe our ways are better than his, which is rebellion against the supreme authority of the entire universe. And this exposes the reality that it's actually we who have offended God in doing that. Like we have committed the ultimate offense against him, rebelling against him. And the Bible calls this rebellion sin, which in fact infects every aspect of our being. Permeates our hearts, our desires. It's the reason we see challenging and difficult things happening in the world. Think about what's happening in Eastern Europe right now. And ultimately, it separates us from God, leaving us under his just wrath. Because of our bent towards sin, Jesus tells us that we don't need a multi-step recovery program or just to try harder to get better, but instead we need a new heart. And this is the same message that the prophets proclaimed before Jesus would even come, who interestingly enough, all of them were rejected as well. Jesus mentions this in conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says this, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And Jesus would then explain to Nicodemus that his heart would need to be supernaturally transformed in order to be healed, which he described as being born again. So Jesus said our hearts are wicked and in need of being healed, which brings out another bold claim. Jesus claimed that he alone provides the redemption that our hearts need. Now, we live in a culture and a world that tells us that we are in control of our own destiny. That if we just try hard enough and do our best, we're going to come out on top. We don't need God at all for that matter, is what culture says. Which is the very lie that brought about our sinful nature in the first place. Jesus confronts that lie head on and tells us that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And we take offense to that because we want to be in control. We don't like hearing that we're not in control. And we don't like hearing that we need to depend on someone else to find that healing. It's just as Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Me. So if we hear his claims and our inclination is to be offended at him or reject him as Lord, we fail to realize the eternal consequences of that decision, some of which we actually kind of see a picture of in our passage today. Look with me back at verse 5. The people reject Jesus and look what happens. In verse 5 he says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Like I mentioned before, it almost seems as if Jesus' divine power was limited by the response of these individuals. But that's not what this passage is saying at all. In fact, the parallel account of this certain occurrence in Matthew's gospel actually helps clarify what this passage is saying. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen really quick. But in Matthew chapter 13, the exact same circumstance, it says this. And Jesus did not do many mighty works there. Notice it says did not rather than could not. Why? Because of their unbelief which this speaks to the purpose behind why Jesus would do miracles. He didn't do mighty works just to please a crowd or put on a show. Like he's not a circus musician seeking to gain people's attention. Jesus did miracles to show us who he was and to communicate what he had come to do. And if in doing those miracles, there was no receptivity to who he was, then as an act of judgment, he would cease from doing them. In other words, there would be no point in doing miracles if the people didn't believe he was who he said he was. Which then makes the final verse of this passage even more terrifying. Last half of verse six says, and he went about among the villages teaching. He leaves town. 
And as far as we know from biblical history, Jesus never returned to his hometown again. In fact, church history teaches us that a Christian church wasn't established in Nazareth until the 4th century under the rule of Constantine. These individuals allowed their hearts to remain cold and were left in their state of rebellion, separated from God, which should serve as a warning to us. If we reject Jesus and his claims, we stand guilty before God. And the Bible makes it clear that if you die in this state of rebellion, you will endure the full weight of God's wrath for all of eternity. In fact, Jesus said this to Nicodemus, whom I referenced earlier in John 3.18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Like rejecting Jesus leads to eternal separation from Jesus. Which is why I want to urge you today, particularly if you've never made a response to Jesus, never decided to trust him, like don't follow the example that we see in chapter six. Like rather than taking offense at Jesus and rejecting him as king, I want to encourage you to pursue a second response we see whispered in this text. And that's this, is that we can humbly accept Jesus as king and serve him as Lord. We can humbly accept Jesus as king and serve him as Lord. Like all of Jesus' claims would absolutely be offensive unless they were true. Unless they were true. And this is where we see that Jesus didn't just make these claims, but he backed them up with his life. And rather than being a stumbling block, they become the greatest news in all of the world to us. Like this is the good news of Jesus, that when we could do nothing to save us from ourselves, God, out of love for you and me, did everything necessary for us. He came down to this earth in the person of Jesus, who was both fully man and fully God. He lived a perfect, sinless life and willingly went to die on the cross in our place, bearing the full penalty that we all deserved. An infinite Savior taking on the full weight of God's wrath on our behalf in here. Here's the key. He didn't stay dead, but rather three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was God, proclaiming that whoever turns from their sin and trusts in his free gift of salvation, no matter who they are or what they have done, will receive a new heart, will be restored in their relationship to him that will last for all of eternity. Like he has done the unimaginable and he invites us to humbly receive his grace And his mighty works attest to this. I said we're not going to have time to go through the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. But let me just remind us of how each of those miracles that take place in in those verses show us how mighty and powerful Jesus is. We see at the end of Mark chapter 4 that Jesus is sovereign over nature. Like he commands the storm such that the wind and the rain and the sea become still. Who can do that? Who can do that? But we saw in our Bible reading this morning in Job 28 where it says that he gives the wind its height and measures out the seas in his hands. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the spiritual realm. He encounters Legion, a man possessed by many demons, and at his command, the demons flee, and Legion's life is changed forever. He's sovereign over disease. Jesus is the one who, with a brush of his cloak, heals a woman who had been bleeding without explanation for 12 years. And ultimately, the best news of all, Jesus is sovereign over death. He follows Jairus to his home where his young daughter was lying lifeless and cold in his house. People say, Jesus, you're too late. She's already died. And with a word, he brings her back to life, her health fully restored, just as he eventually would do to his own body. Folks, this is such good news, particularly for those of you that I know even just this week have lost loved ones in the Lord. And I love the way those individuals and those miracles respond to Jesus. 
I know we don't have time to look there again today, but as I was reading through chapter five this week, I noticed something consistent about the three people who approached Jesus, meaning Legion, the bleeding woman, and Jairus, the ruler from the synagogue. In every single of those instances, this is how Mark describes their response to Jesus. They fell down before him at his feet. They fell down before him at his feet. They humbly bow before Jesus, recognizing his Lord, and surrender their entire lives to his authority. It's like it says actually about Legion in verse 20 of chapter 5. It says, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled which is in stark contrast to those in chapter six. Rather than marvel, the people of Nazareth refuse to believe. Now, but that being said, we actually see still a glimmer of hope in the text, text that whispers a second response. Listen again to verse five. It says this, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them which I would still argue is a pretty mighty miracle if you think about that. Like, some people were sick and now they're perfectly healthy. Like, if that happened to you, I'm guessing you wouldn't say, that's just a small thing. That's a pretty big deal. And I wish I knew why Jesus chose to heal just those few individuals and the impact that it had on them. The Bible doesn't tell us, but maybe there were a few people who actually did believe in what he said present in his hometown. Or maybe it was just an act of Christ's divine grace towards them. Regardless, it shows us that there is still hope, even for those who have rejected Jesus, that he will welcome you back if you've rejected him. Like, this is who Jesus is. Like, he's infinitely good, full of patience, full of love, full of mercy, full of grace. In fact, I just want to read one of the most glorious descriptions I think we have of Jesus in the New Testament. There's many. This comes from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, which, by the way, this is written by someone who's one of the chief haters of Jesus at the time, was attacking Christians, and his life was transformed. Listen to how he describes Jesus. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is him. This is the one we get to read about today. And when it comes to Jesus, we have two choices. We either fall down as those individuals did and worship him as king, or we seek to throw him off the cliff and reject him. There's no neutral. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Like, how will you respond to Jesus? And I want to urge you, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus as Lord, to do so today. Like, do not put this off, as no one knows how much time we have left on this earth. And again, be encouraged that even if you have been hostile towards him in the past, he will still welcome you back graciously as his son or daughter if you turn to him in repentance, regardless of what that rebellion has looked like. But also be warned, If you continue in your rejection of Jesus, you might allow your heart, as we've talked about in recent weeks, to become calloused and cold to the point of no return. 
So how will you respond to Jesus? Now, before I close this afternoon now, I want to leave you with two brief warnings that I think are implied in this passage. And I know we spend a lot of time talking about rejecting Jesus because I believe that's what the main point of this text is, those who rejected him. But these warnings are actually specifically for those of you who would say that, actually, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. So two warnings for us before we close today. Warning number one, you can have knowledge without faith. You can have knowledge without faith. And as you read through this passage, you can see actually that the people don't necessarily doubt that the divine is at work within Jesus and his miracles. In verse 2, they recognize that mighty works were done by his hands. And as we mentioned before, they had heard about the amazing miracles Jesus had done prior to coming to Nazareth. He'd healed people. He cast out demons. He brought someone back from the dead. The people may also have recognized that this wisdom given to him was actually from God. In fact, in verse 2, when the people ask, what is the wisdom given to him? A few commentators have noted that the passive voice of that word given could indicate that they believe that wisdom was given to him by God. Yet Jesus could still see the state of their hearts. And as the text says, he marveled at their lack of belief. Like all that to say, these people had knowledge about Jesus, but were unwilling to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was. So being saved by Jesus does not come by simply agreeing that he is God. I reference James 2.19, which says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Being saved by Jesus is not just simply agreeing that he is God. Being saved by Jesus is reflected in a humble heart that's willing to admit how we have greatly offended him and how desperately we are in need of his grace every single day. And it's expressed by a willingness to surrender him as Lord over our entire lives along with a commitment to follow him and his word in all things. Knowledge about God does not necessarily lead to salvation from God. And warning number two, beware of allowing Jesus to fade into the familiar. Beware of allowing Jesus to fade into the familiar. Jesus was so familiar to those in Nazareth that this is what kept them from recognizing who he truly was. And if we're not careful we can allow the same thing to happen with us, particularly if you've been a lot around church for a long time. Like we can read stories about him, attend church on Sundays, walk through religious routines like we always have, but still lack a sense of awe and wonder for who he is. So for those of you who have trusted in Christ, this is what I want you to consider today. Does Jesus still capture your awe and attention? Does he still spark incredible joy and amazement within your soul? Like when you hear the gospel proclaimed, does your heart continue to stir with gratitude and affection and joy of recognition of what he has done for you? Or does it just become common to you? Has Jesus just become another aspect of your life instead of the focal point of your life? Like we're so prone to lose our wonder because our hearts still wrestle with our sinful thoughts and desires. We still want to be the center of our own world. And we need to be reminded often of why he is worthy of our attention and awe. It's one of the reasons we rehearse the gospel every single week in our sermons. We want to be reminded of this every single week. We're prone to forget and we need to be reminded. In fact, Paul Tripp in his book that's literally titled Awe says it this way. He says, familiarity tends to blind our eyes and dull our senses. What once produced awe in us now barely gets our attention. We must commit ourselves to being humbly vigilant 
We must start each day focusing the eyes of our hearts on the stunning glory of God and his amazing life-transforming grace. We must resist allowing familiarity to replace divine glory with the mundane. Folks, we serve an infinite God worthy of eternal glory who can never be exhausted of reasons to be praised. He's more than enough to fuel infinite desire. In fact, I tend to believe that because we serve an eternal God, even an attorney, we're going to be continuing to learn how amazing our Lord is for billions and billions and billions of years because he's that good. He's that eternal. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team um, to join me out on stage, but um, this is why we need to spend time with him every single day. This is why we talk about it. This is why we encourage you to get into a reading plan or join us in that because spending time in this word is what cultivates that awe and reverence for the Lord. Spending time on our knees with him in relationship with Jesus. I started this message with a story about how my dad almost, no, he didn't almost, he actually did offend an Olympic champion for taking him to be just another individual. Well, a few years later, my dad was on a flight uh, to somewhere else for work purposes. And no, this individual didn't sit down next to him on that flight. But he was bored for a moment, and you know what you do when you're bored? You reach for that magazine, the airline magazine that's in the front pocket, and kind of flip through it just to see if there's anything in here. Is anything that good? Actually, we probably all avoid that now at this point because you know everyone's touched that magazine at this point. You're like, I want nothing to do with that. We pulled out that magazine, and you open it up, and you'll never guess what he saw inside five-page article, The Olympic Champion of Austria. It was written on none other than Joseph Fessmanel. And my dad laughed as he was reminded of the time that he offended that very same champion on the train ride to Innsbruck, Austria, many years before. And in a similar way, I pray that our look at this passage would serve as a similar reminder to us today. Or maybe even a warning to not take Jesus as commonplace or just another familiar character, but to see him for who he truly is. God in the flesh, the one who knows you intimately, the one who created you, the one who willingly went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to, and the only one who produces infinite joy and wonder and satisfaction that will captivate you for all of this life and all of eternity. Let us not lose the wonder of this Jesus. As he says in Matthew eleven six, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So I ask you one final time, how will you respond to Jesus today? Would you bow and pray with me? I don't know where you are at in your walk with the Lord, but if you have never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, I want to invite you that you can do that right now. There's not a special incantation or specific thing you have to say. You can even just in the quietness of your heart just acknowledge to God that you recognize that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from God, but that you believe that Jesus did everything necessary to purchase your salvation on the cross and that you rely not on yourself, but on him for that eternal destiny. And if you say that to the Lord in the quietness of your heart, he promises to flood your soul with his spirit and seal you for all of eternity. And you can do that right now. 
And Father, I want to pray for anyone in this room or anyone in Montgomery County or listening online who may not have yet taken that step. I pray, Lord, that this week you would continue to show them who you are, that you love them, you died for them, and you desire to be in relationship with them, and you're willing to receive them if they will turn to you in repentance. In fact, God, I pray that you would show them your nearness to them in specific ways this week, that they can't escape you, and that you would lead them to trust in you. And for those of us, Lord, that have trusted you for the forgiveness of our sins, I pray, Lord, that you would protect our hearts from ever going cold or seeing you as familiar. May we every day wake up in the morning or at night, open our Bibles and see who you truly are in the word and give you praise and glory for who you are and what you've done for us. And may we just grow an understanding of you and your grandeur. As it says in the song, I know we've sung before here, Lord, may we never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May we see it like the first time, standing as sinners lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May we never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Father, we love you. We thank you that you're a God worthy of all of our attention and awe and amazement. Thank you for what you've taught us in this passage. And we entrust this to you. And all God's children said together, amen.